you you talk really eloquently about making internationalism material, right? Because it happens now on such an abstract level. There's really not much material solidarity between people. But you talk about the connection between migrant workers, say, working in West London, and these struggles that are happening both in uh, in Europe and also in in South Asia, and how in the process of an insurrection, these are actually tools that we can imagine. You know, workers from one country communicating with workers from another and trying to reorganize production. Yeah, and. I think at the moment in this kind of COVID time as well, I mean, it's you really can have discussions with your workmates about, you know, um, what is what what is essential, and what is bullshit, and you can have a discussion about, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, three hours a day would be enough. So what does that mean? You know, I think if you look at the insurrection is part of the left or also the communization part of the left by the fact that they say, okay, there is no transition period. I think uh, they shy away from talking about revolution as a fairly pragmatic, practical question uh, where you can say, okay, in this moment of time, uh, we need uh, a radical reduction of, of, you know, working day. Uh, by a takeover, and only that would enable us to tackle the bigger social problems like, you know, climate change, international uneven development and all that. But the first step is to just kind of, you know, let everyone work three hours a day and have time for, you know, social creativity and, and, and debate. But that's a, yeah, it's a power question. How can you enforce that? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know. Going back to the nitty gritty of how we're going to take back the world. Um, the brass tax. <laughs> One thing I really appreciate about your work is you're very honest about just how difficult a global communist revolution would be to pull off across national boundaries and all the different things that would need to happen for that to occur. Um, and there's really very little precedent for this, if any. Um, what would you say to people who think that this idea has very little chance of succeeding and therefore, we should model our tactics off of what has come the closest to succeeding in the past, um, talking about the USSR, Cuba, etc. And um, that is related to the question, of course, of how do we defend against the counter-revolution um, if we don't have any kind of organized militia or emergency dictatorship of the proletariat, which generally takes the form of the worker state, although I guess it doesn't necessarily have to. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the question of uh, the Soviet Union and Cuba, I mean, uh, yeah, I think having to deal a lot with like, workers from Eastern Europe, I mean, the, that's why we're very <laughs> careful of using the word communism in, in our local workers' papers, not because we wouldn't be communists, but because it has such a bad name uh, and for a good reason. I mean, if you... We're part of the Eastern Bloc as a worker. Um, you, you were not too happy, uh, I guess, in most situations. But what does that say? Um, I think that, again, we can only kind of see the challenges of a, you know, of a wider global class movement if we compare it with 1968, which was the last bigger revolutionary cycle. And uh, we could see that there were definitely two different, um, let's say, um, elements or cl even class segments kind of that were 
operating then. You had like a, a working class kind of uprising in the global north, which included the Eastern Bloc, like, you know, Czech Republic and things. And you had, um, let's say, an anti-colonial struggle that was still mainly, you know, carried by um, in a progressive middle-class national bourgeoisie plus peasantry. And uh, that these two waves didn't come together, really, apart from symbolism, like solidarity with the Viet Cong or like uh, with the anti-colonial struggle. But it was not like a real workers' solidarity in the sense like, you know, we, we really understand and we fight the same struggle here. It was mainly a political mediation. And that would look very different today. I mean, um, struggles in the global south will be mainly by those workers who provide the consumer goods of the world, I mean, in China or India. Um, so I think the main challenge here is that the different segments uh, that we mentioned before, that, you know, marginalized workers, manual workers of the mass industries and, and intellectual workers, you find also uh, a global division uh, in that sense, very schematically. You've got like areas where it's mainly like uh, workers producing the raw materials, so like Africa kind of mining. You've got manufacturing workers in, in, in Asia and you've got like obviously also manufacturing workers, but also a lot of uh, the development that takes place in, in the global north, like machine industry and, um, you know, the production of means of production. So, yeah, th this is a, a regional uh, division that even if you look at a reformist model, like if you think that, you know, you can, for example, uh, you know, have a socialist government on a national scale that would, you know, undergo or like Im impose, um, you know, radical reforms, that will be even more kind of uh, limited by, you know, the the limited function of the or of the national economy or the yeah so it's not that we could kind of boast with having the the, the good plan but like to think uh, to be able to solve this on a on a national scale through electoral politics seems even more unrealistic nowadays